Right, I was gonna say, it feels like you've had the first dog. I guess Dexter was the original one, right? Feels like you've had him for quite some time. So I guess yeah, it makes sense. Right around the time you got married, you get him. Yeah, so it's uh, he'll be coming up in six years this year. Wow, okay. So speaking of eyes, uh, the iWatch. <laughs> I, it, <laughs> the they, Apple they, Watch. They, they, oh, oh, it's not called the iWatch, is it? Mm-mm, Apple That's right. Watch. I keep, I keep mixing it up. I remember I was looking around last night on Twitter to see what kind of chatter was going on uh, involving it, and I punched in iWatch, and, like, nothing came up. Um, I was like, wow, that's weird. Nobody's talking about it. Um, and I guess, yeah, that, that would explain why. So I didn't pre-order one last night, or really this morning. This morning. It feels like last night, but it was really technically this morning. Um, you got one. What did you get? Uh, how was the experience buying one? How did you order it? Um, and when are you going to get it? Because I saw that, uh, to, to interrupt you before you answer the question, on Apple's website, I saw they said they were going to be available like April 24th or 27th or something. Mm, for the lucky people. Um, <laughs> so the, the watch I originally wanted was the black stainless steel with the black stainless steel band. But that watch is running around $1,000. And for a product yeah, that I'm sure. not exactly sure I, I need, especially for a product in its first stage, there's no way I'm dropping $1,000 on that product. So right. I ended up going with the black aluminum sport watch with the black band, which I'll probably change out at some point for something a little bit more stylish. Mm -hmm. But it all, it seems like everybody and their grandmother wanted that watch because within seconds, the shipping time went from April 24th all the way to May 13th to the 27th or something like that. So one o'clock hit my time, which was 12 o'clock Pacific, and I'm refreshing and refreshing and refreshing. The Apple Store on on your computer, on the browser, of course, wasn't coming up. So I grabbed my phone, opened the Apple Store app, and I was able to access the watch and pre-order it. And stupidly, so here's the thing. April 24th, I'm going to actually be back in California working at the full screen office. So I figured, okay, I'll get it shipped to the full screen office. So stupidly, while I'm pre-ordering this thing, not thinking that I have to order this thing now, I start typing in full screen's address, which adds, you know, about a minute to, to the to the process, right? I press order and lo and behold, it ships in May. So probably in that minute that I was typing in the address, stupidly, I didn't think I could have just submitted the order with my address that's on file and then changed the address later. But yeah, so right. hopefully so that shipping time bumps up a little bit, but right now it looks like I'm getting it in May. Well, that sounds great. Before we continue with the iWatch story, this is the We Geeks podcast. Episode nine, if I recall nine. correctly. Nine, we made it to number nine. Episode nine, and if you want to check out the full write-up and all the information about any of the articles and things we talk about today, tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode nine. Yep. And do we still have our Patreon? I haven't checked Patreon. We do. We have two patrons, and we have oh. our $25 patron over at uh, patreon.com slash wegeeks, and that is Valdis or Valdis and I'm probably still pronouncing it wrong, but you can check him out at kamis1232.deviantart.com. And if you love our show like we do and you want to help support the future of our show, head over to patreon.com slash wegeeks and give us like a buck or two every month. It's like a latte. And, and if you can't work with Patreon, share it with your friends. It's just a slow building process, and we're all going to enjoy it together. That is so. true. Cool. So uh, now that we got that out of the way, episode nine, 
Let's get back to the iWatch or the not the iWatch, the Apple Watch <laughs> story. Now the black band that you got, it, you said it's not the stainless steel one. So is that like a neoprene rubber or, or aluminum? You said aluminum, or I heard you say aluminum watch. Is that just the watch face? Yeah, the and body the- is like a, a very lightweight aluminum versus uh-huh. the stainless steel, and the band itself is like a very it's like a rubber, I guess. I I might okay. go actually to one of the Apple stores today and try one of them on. But um, yeah, it's like a rubber material, I guess, because it's a sport watch. It has to be very Mm -hmm. lightweight. Mm -hmm. Um, But the black stainless steel, even the band itself is, I think, like $450, which is absolutely nuts. There's no way I'm putting any money towards that. And I'm sure third-party vendors will come out with other uh, much cheaper bands. So you're talking the stainless steel band is almost 500 bucks just for the stainless steel band. Yep. Wow. Okay. That's kind of crazy. Now I saw, um, I don't remember if it was on Twitter or Reddit or wherever, but you can go into an Apple store today, at least theoretically and try one on, correct? Like it's size for one. Yeah. It's by appointment only. So you have to go online to Apple's website and actually make an appointment. Otherwise the stores are going to be absolutely crazy, but they will let you try on the watches, try the different bands, swap them out, see how the Apple watch feels and works. Um, I guess gives you enough time to make a change if you want to. But at this point, if you make a change to what you pre-ordered, you're going to be looking at some of them are now shipping in June or July, which is insane. This is why you need to get the $10,000 one because nobody's getting that and you'll probably (laughs) have it in a couple weeks. Hold on. I'm going to change my order. (laughs) So, all right. So that's cool. So, I mean, by, by mid to late May, we could have some sort of review on an Apple watch, uh, from you. Correct. Oh yeah, there's definitely one coming. Hopefully, it comes a little bit sooner than May because I just right. can't wait that long. <laughs> right. So, well, it, it's I'm such a geek. It, <laughs> if it's May 10th, if it's May 9th, it's a month away. So that's true. You know, it's it's no big deal. All right. So moving on, uh, other new products we have Lens Baby. And if you're not familiar with what a Lens Baby is, it's like a it's like a poor man's tilt shift lens with less control is how I would describe it. It's supposed to be it's supposed to give you these effects. And there are a couple of the Lens Baby lenses that are really neat, but they're kind of unpredictable uh, to say the least. Um, I don't personally own one. I really should go pick one up. Um, I got to use one a couple of years ago at a photography convention, and it wasn't really the kind of thing that you can pick up at a trade show and just say, hey, I know how to use this thing and feel totally comfortable with it. At least I couldn't. Um, but they're definitely – I could see some really cool uses for something like that. But I almost would rather do like some prisming or some you know like lens mirroring type stuff. Um, where I'm where I'm kind of adding an element to a lens rather than swapping out the entire lens because I'm so optical reliant in my photography. I want good optics. I want good glass on my lens or on my camera, excuse me. I want a good lens on my camera. Um, I, I have a hard time even spending whatever 80, 100, 200 bucks for a lens baby because I feel like you know, I'm going to get that amazing shot and it's going to be through this piece of junk glass um, and I'm going to hate myself for a long time. But anyway, so that's LensBaby. LensBaby has introduced uh, the Velvet Lens and Howard, you kind of turned me – I won't say turned me on to this because I think we both agree <laughs> that we absolutely don't like what it does. But you're the one who showed me it. Um, what do you think about it, Howard? Well, well, so Lens Baby, like you said, have a, has a bunch of different lenses, and some of them are kind of neat. They do tilt shift effects, and these different allows you to focus on different things in different right. ways. And the actual lens itself, some of them actually like bend in certain ways mm-hmm. to give you that effect. 
Yeah, but, like physically bend on the front of yeah, the Yeah, they physically yeah. bend. And those are kind of cool. And I, I don't see myself using those lenses for more than two photos. Because if I see someone's portfolio and it has all photos with all the same effects, I would probably puke. But I can kind of give those a pass. But this new Lens Baby Velvet lens is basically made to mimic this soft focus, glamour style, glowing effect for your photos. Which, to be very honest, first of all, the examples on the Lens Baby website look terrible. The first yeah. example, it's like this lady, in the, the, I guess it's a bride, and her whole face is glowing, and it's super soft. It's not sharp. It just looks, it's a terrible example. But mm -hmm. these sorts of effects, in my opinion, I'm, I'm not a photographer, so maybe I don't know anything. But these should never, ever, ever be done in your camera or in your lens. They should always be done afterwards in Photoshop or in Lightroom, and they certainly shouldn't be done to the extent that they're shown in these examples. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I go so far as to say they should never be done in camera. Um, I mean, historically, in the brief history of photography, it looks like the old lenses that you would smear with Vaseline, or there were mm. old soft focus lenses that w would do stuff like this. Now, this has like this almost blinged out, cheap feeling. And I, and I know the reason that it feels so cheap. I mean, the photo that they have on their homepage, no exaggeration, looks like they blurred everything on the image except her face, and then sort of like duplicated that layer in Photoshop, blurred that layer, and set it to a blend mode of soft light. I mean, if you see the way the blur is interacting with her hair, that's exactly what it looks like. Um, so it looks like a soft focus lens, but sort of like extremely soft focus lens. Um, I think the problem with a lens like this is you have so many iPhone apps that have this like glamour glow effect. Um, and we're actually going to touch on that in the new Snapseed because I was playing around with it. I'm actually working on a review of it right now. And they have mm. this glamour filter. And it's that, it's the same kind of just no glow. You know, you just shouldn't do it. Don't do it. It looks really bad. Um, and I don't, I don't know that it's ever really looked great. I mean, I guess there, there used to be a use with like wedding photography where you, you take a shot with the lens. Um, but, you know, are you really going to carry a lens around on wedding day that you're going to get one photo with? Um, and really, in my opinion at least, if you're a photographer worth his weight in anything, um, not really not even a, a shot that you would want to get. Um, but, I mean, maybe there's a cool use for these lenses. They're very strange. Um, and the, the other lens babies I think are much better, much more useful. Um, at least some of the, you know, sort of the edge, uh, there's the edge 80 optic. There's like one called a 50 optic and a few others. Uh, let me actually pull up their products. Yeah. A sweet, sweet 50 optic, sweet 35 optic and an edge 80 optic. Um, those ones, at least I could see some sort of creative portrait use for. And if you look at them, um, some of the shots of sort of landscapes and things further away from the camera start to look very uh, tilt shifty. Um, that stuff I think is really cool. Um, but when it comes to the soft focus stuff, I don't know. It really doesn't do anything for me. It just looks cheap. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. Some of them I can kind of give a pass on, like I mentioned before, but this soft focus one, the velvet lens, it's not something that you can undo. Once you take a photo, it's permanently burnt into that photo. So even if mm -hmm. you put it into Photoshop or After Effects, or not After Effects, but Lightroom, you can't say, oh, you know what? It's too focused, or it's not focused enough, or the focus is in the wrong area. You can't change that later, which is why I prefer to take nice, clean photos and then do all that focusing and soft blurring and glowing afterwards in Photoshop. Yeah, I mean, especially with the number of actions and, and just power you have with Photoshop, Camera Raw, Lightroom, all that stuff. Um, just kind of like, why do it in camera? And it, it's the essence of a destructive photo, right? Mm -hmm. We're all about non-destructive editing, non-destructive everything. Um, and this is the essence of a destructive photo. So, yeah. So moving on from that, in other camera news, more cinematic here, but I just figured I would bring it up because um, everybody's kind of getting into cinematic stuff. If you're on YouTube, uh, there might be some interest, or if you're just a photographer, cinematographer, there might be some interest. Um, and I know certainly it caught my eye. Canon uh, has released a C300 Mark II, as well as an X, a camera they're calling an XC10. Um, now the, the Canon c300 mark ii there is obviously already a c300 um canon's adding to a an, already an impressive array of the c100 the c300 and the c500 the c100 is an amazing camera i've never shot with a c300 or c500 um but the dynamic range that these cameras have is really pretty amazing it's really uh great great stuff uh the c300 here mark ii is going to cost about 16 grand uh, so it's a pricey you camera. Buy an app, you can buy a gold Apple Watch for that it, price. There you go, and still have six grand <laughs> left over to buy a Mark III, a Canon 5D Mark III, and a really oh. nice lens. Um, but the the C300 Mark III, it shoots in 4K, which is great. Um, and you really, I mean, you got to look around on Vimeo and see some of like the C300, C500, even C100 footage. Really, the C3 and 500, that's the footage that's really, really impressive because the people who are using the cameras have much bigger budgets, obviously, um, and are getting... A much better cinematic look they're they're sort of the better filmmakers you don't have to wade through kind of the junkier filmmakers who could only afford that c100 uh, and then the xc10 this one i thought was particularly interesting because it is a 4k camera for 2500 bucks that's um, not bad. It doesn't but shoot, definitely better than seventeen thousand. Right. It doesn't shoot in the same very deep bit depth video that some of the bigger cinematic cameras like the C three hundred Mark II would shoot in. It only does your standard eight uh, bit. I think it's eight bit video or twelve bit. I don't think it's twelve bit. I think it's eight bit. I don't have. I forgot to put it on my note here. Um, but it's sort of the low level video, so you're not going to be able to suck all of that contrast out of it like you would do for really cinematic video and get all that detail back in your sky and back in your shadows and things like that. There's an amazing film. Um, it's, it's set in the Brooklyn Zoo or the Bronx Zoo um, shot on, I believe it was a C300. Uh, you can find it on YouTube uh, if you just search like C300. It's either C300 or C500. I can't remember which. But it's an incredible piece of cinematography. I mean, it's just beautiful to look at. Um, even if the story is not compelling, it's just great. I mean, everything about it, the wardrobe and the casting is great, but it's just really cool, like five minute short film and just shows off the dynamic range of the camera. And it's really, really impressive. They do a really great job with it. But the XC10, while it doesn't maybe have the bit depth and therefore dynamic range of something like the C300, it does still have 4K. And the first thing I thought about and Howard, maybe this will appeal to you, um, was 
I feel like this is going to be the 4K camera that makes itself into the or finds itself in the hands of a lot of YouTubers. I mean, 2,500 bucks. There are a lot of people that went out and bought Canon 5D Mark IIs and Mark III's, and you're talking 3,200 dollars without a lens, right? Now a lot of those kids and those those bloggers and those guys and girls um, have a lens. And you can upgrade the body. I mean, you already know you're not using it to shoot a ton of stills, so you don't really need that. Um, the XC10, however, does shoot, I think it's 12 megapixel stills, standard digital camera size stills. Uh, I'm sorry, with the standard ratio, so it's not like a video 16.9 or any kind of crazy ratio. Um, so standard digital photos, you can still shoot if you do need some photos. But the fact that you could pick up a 4K camera for $2,500 uh, is kind of crazy. Yeah, it's cr it's crazy how quickly these 4K cameras are becoming so cheap. And mm -hmm. you know, again, for 2,500 bucks, if you're a YouTuber who's making YouTube videos for a living, um, I think this is a, a fantastic price point. We were actually talking about 4K cameras last week, I think, with a new Nikon camera that came out. Yeah, and it's kind of nice to see that Canon is finally getting their getting into the whole 4K space because they've been kind of slacking lately, I think. Um, I would love to see 4K video actually come to a DSLR like the 5D Mark III or whatever it might be, whatever's next. Mark IV. But Mark IV is next. We have the Mark III. <laughs> um, but for me personally, I still think $2,500 is a little bit too steep. But then again, I don't really shoot much 4K video. I do shoot uh, video for my intros and outros for my YouTube videos. But... I don't think I would at the moment drop 2500 bucks just for the intros and outros. The, I'm, the reason it hit me is because there are a lot of YouTubers who are using cameras like the Sony FS7 or F FX700, the Sony FS7, uh, the Canon C-Series already, which I think the C100 starts at like six or 8000 and then obviously mm -hmm. the C300 is now going to be about 16000 and the C500 is whatever, a few bucks more. I'll put it to you that way. The Sony FS7 I think is like six grand, and again, that's without Sony glass. You can buy an adapter for your Canon lenses, which is probably what I would do. I love the Sony FS and FX series. Um, those are amazing cameras too. I don't know what I would get out of a C series or the Sony, but I mean, just between those cameras, I mean, you got YouTubers spending six or eight grand for a camera plus lens. Crazy. So, but I'm just saying, so now just imagine you can have a 4K mm -hmm. camera for $2,500. It's really, really a great price. Um, I know, relatively speaking, it's still very expensive, but relative to other 4K cameras and even just cinematic cameras like prosumer YouTube level, if you will, cinema cameras, which I mean the C1, 3, and 500 are not YouTube level cinematic cameras are, I would say, higher than that, but can be, I mean, you can use anything on YouTube, right? But I'm just saying for that space to have a 4K camera for 2,500 bucks, I mean, you bought, what, a Canon 6D, right? Mm -hmm. And what yep. was that, 1,600, 1,800 bucks when you got it? Less. Yeah, it's probably around there, yeah. Right. Plus Something then you like figure that. a lens, you're at twenty five hundred before you know it. Um, you know, with that camera and you're not getting four K. Um, now, true. obviously, the XC1, uh, the XC10, you would still need a lens, but it, I don't know. I just thought it was a very interesting mix of four K at the low price, and physically, it's a pretty small little camera um, as well. So it's pretty cool. Um, oh, well, the it one is, thing, four, no, go ahead. Four K um, footage is becoming so much more important than it was before. Like a year ago, or two two years ago, when four K was kind of just dribbling out. People really didn't care about it because there were no displays 
to actually serve this stuff. And if they were displays, they cost you know thousands of dollars. But I mean, we j actually you just bought the exact same monitor that I have. Yep. It's a Samsung 28 inch 4K display. It was probably what 300, 500 dollars. Yeah, like I think that. I paid. I think I paid exactly 500 for it, or 499. And I didn't. I never realized it before. But when you're browsing YouTube and you come across a video that's only 1080p, it's like, oh come on, couldn't you have shot this in 4K? So. It's, yeah, it's becoming so much more important to actually shoot with 4K, and it's nice to see these cameras coming down in price. Yeah, I think the bottleneck is the cost of the cameras a little bit, but even more so the cost of hard drive space, which is becoming cheaper and cheaper oh, and yeah. cheaper. I mean, didn't Amazon just release, I just heard about a service that they're doing, cloud-based service, that's like five bucks or 12 bucks a year or something. It's like a buck a month. Um, and it's a ton of space. Um, and I mean, there's all kinds of different cloud-based storage uh, solutions. Of course, you have to upload the footage. But the point is, even if you're not storing on the cloud, space is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. I mean, you can pick up a three terabyte external hard drive for 150 bucks or something. I don't even know. I haven't, I haven't really looked at the prices in a little while. Yeah, um, and there was a company recently, I don't remember who, who it was, but they announced that they figured out how to produce a 10 terabyte SSD or something like that. Wow. Um, obviously, this isn't commercially available right now, but the fact that these things are being produced and researched, we're going to see prices of hard drives and storage drop tremendously over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, don't you remember when like a, a three terabyte hard drive was like 800 bucks? I, uh -huh. I, I vividly remember that. It was not very long ago. I actually remember back in high school going to the, the a radio shack i think buying my first thumb drive it was 128 megabytes and i spent 99 dollars on it wow i'm still in shock that you mentioned radio shack what is that <laughs> <laughs> so anyway 4k footage it's definitely coming into its own i think as hard drive space becomes much much cheaper and transfer speeds pick up and people's hardware mm. picks up to match it that goes back to the whole uh, what was that uh, connector for the new MacBook, right? That's supposed to be able to oh, have it super fast yeah. in and out. So the more everything like that gets standardized, um, I think th these these larger files, larger data data rates, everything like that is just going to speed up, 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 up. Um, and and then as that picks up, the cameras obviously are going to get even cheaper. Probably, I guess. I don't know though, because I mean, you got these Canon DSLRs that are wildly popular, and the price doesn't seem to drop on them. So Canon and Nikon and all those people, they'll still take your money. But everything else, I will think. Get well, yeah, I think what we'll start to see is that we'll start to see Canon and Nikon and Fujifilm or whatever it is. They'll start to they'll keep their high end cameras at twenty five hundred dollars or six thousand dollars, but we'll also start to see them introduce one thousand dollar cameras that finally have four K footage capabilities. Yeah, speaking of Fuji, I did just pick up um, a Fuji X one hundred T. It came in the mail yesterday, so I've been playing around with it, getting used to it. But I don't want to sidetrack with Fuji. I did actually test out the video capabilities last night and was not very impressed with them. But in fairness to the camera, I didn't have it in an ideal situation. I think I had the ISO up a little too high. It was up around 800, which the Canon can handle, but the Fuji doesn't seem to be able to handle it very well. So I'll probably test it out again today. Um, but I can't attach my video monitor to it or anything like that when I'm shooting. Um, I had to order the micro HDMI to HDMI connector to connect oh, the camera. Yeah to uh -huh. uh, my my video monitor so once i do that it'll be much easier to use but i still want to set it up today at a lower iso and check it out it seems to have great depth of field and a much different way of producing that bokeh if you will than a canon or a nikon does so that in and of itself i really like and it's so small and compact and it's just it's pretty cool uh but anyway moving on the dji has released another 
drone in its uh, Phantom Drone series. So they released like the DJ DJI Inspire One or something. I don't know if you remember that, Howard. It was I a do, very yeah. like movable copter, um, and it had like the gyro. A gimbal and everything built right in all the stabilization and it had a camera on it not a gopro camera um and therefore it didn't have that crazy bend um it had a, a lens and the the name for the lens is slipping my mind right now but the lens that would keep everything straight and true and proper and all that good stuff well dji has released a phantom 3 now phantom is the series just beneath inspire if you will um and these drones because there's two of them, uh, have a camera built right on, and they come with the three-axis gimbal stabilization system to ensure your perfect and smooth video right out of the box. With At least with the original Phantom, I remember I looked into it, and by the way, when I looked into getting one of these, to get the gimbal access system um, and a drone was about $1,600. Um, now, And that's on top of the drone? No, no, the the, oh, dr- with it. the drone was about 800 and okay. the gimbal system was about 800 as well, but you still needed to get a GoPro on top of that if I recall correctly. Um, so these two they they've got two cam or two two drones now. The advanced drone which is the red stripe one or silver stripes or something like that. Um, and then the professional one which has these gold stripes. Um, the difference, at least right now, looks like it is the uh, the professional one will allow you to shoot in 4K. It has a 4K camera, whereas the uh-huh. advanced one is still the standard 1080p. Now, here's what's kind of exciting. Uh, just a moment ago, I told you $1,600 is what it used to cost. Well, the advanced drone with camera is 1000 bucks. Really? Um, yeah. So that's pretty cool. And the 4K drone is $1,260. So oh, you might as well, for for an extra for right for extra two hundred dollars, you might right. as well get the four K. Well, exactly right. The four K is definitely looking forward to the future. Um, it has your you know your app for monitoring the camera. So basically, your iPhone or your iPad will connect to the camera on the drone, so you can monitor and see what the camera is seeing for flying it. Um, you know, it still takes still photos. Uh, it's got the gimbal and stabilization built right in, which I, that's so important. Um, mm-hmm. And before it was such a nightmare, you had to buy the gimbal and you had to like tweak it and adjust it and all this, you know, nonsense. So it really looks um, pretty cool. Um, I even saw something and I didn't really look into it, but the, it can now even go ahead and land and keep track of where it is without GPS. It has a much more sort of visual uh, stabilization and autopilot system, if you will. Um, and I think that was born out of the Inspire One. I remember seeing something that Trey Ratcliffe did, I think with the guys over at Digital Rev TV in Hong Kong or Shanghai or one of those cities um, where he was flying the Inspire One. And they're sort of explaining how it's got these downward facing cameras that help it to land more smoothly and kind of detect hmm. where it is uh, over the ground, which is all really cool. So if you're into the drone stuff, Definitely some exciting and cool news there. Um, I don't really know what to think about the drones anymore. I mean, I still really love the idea of being able to capture drone footage. And it's super cool when you see great drone footage captured and it's captured smoothly. But with all the licensing stuff and the questions and and all the kind of negative publicity surrounding it, I, I don't even know what to think about the future of drones in general. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I love the drones. I love seeing the footage. Some of it is absolutely beautiful. And, and having these um, three-axis, whatever the heck they're called, um, which allows 
the you know the footage should be stabilized so obviously the drones are moving like crazy when you're up in the sky the footage is absolutely amazing and i've wanted one for so long and now that they're fairly affordable i mean a thousand dollars or twelve hundred dollars honestly i'm i'm kind of surprised they even released that thousand dollar drone if for two hundred dollars more you can get the 4k version what what's the point but anyway i'm very curious to see who buys the thousand dollar drone versus the twelve hundred dollar drone but like we spoke about in a previous podcast, the FAA is now coming down very hard on people who are recording and uploading drone footage to YouTube because they don't have the proper licenses. And I guess if you're monetizing unlicensed aerial footage or something like that, the FAA can fine you or remove the videos from YouTube and something like that. So it's kind of it's kind of worrisome. Plus. It requires you to go outside, and I don't like going outside very often. Even though I live in a beautiful place like Boulder, Colorado, with mountains all over the place, I'm home most of the time. So I I think just buying one of these things would be kind of pointless for me. But if you're someone who does like to go outside and explore the world and live in a beautiful place like Trey Trey Ratcliffe lives in New Zealand, I mean... I, I would definitely get one if I lived there. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the thing is as as the novelty aspect of it wears off and the added legality side of it begins heating up. Where does the future of these drones really lie? Um, I don't know. I mean, I could be completely missing the boat on something. I don't, I mean, I don't know that I would buy one because I think it would be something I would take out a couple times, be like, wow, that looks really cool. And then never really use it for anything. I don't, I, I don't know what I would use it for. Um, yeah, if my job relied on me being outside and taking footage of things outdoors, then yeah, it would make perfect sense. I'll, t- I'll tell but you what if- I would buy one for, actually, to interrupt you, to yep. totally mm-hmm. rudely cut in and interrupt you. <laughs> I would buy one when I start doing photography tutorials and I'm out shooting like that um, oh, to get yes. – instead of like having to haul a boom out. I mean a boom is already going to cost you 800 bucks plus you have to level it and everything else. Just to do a quick like little spin with a drone to have an extra angle you know, as we're shooting uh, to get kind of an interesting overview angle of the whole lighting setup or just you know, like if we're working on the edge of a river for instance. Imagine being able to set the drone out over the river and get that angle of you shooting. You know what I mean? So you're never really going way high in the sky. Shouldn't be any kind of any weird FAA breaches. Um, I know still you're supposed to have some sort of certification to fly the thing, but it'll be much more just like a remote control helicopter flight um, and using the camera for that sort of thing than anything else. That would be what I would use it for, I guess. And that, and that, to, and honestly, that would be worth the 1260 bucks as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. If you're using it for business and you're actually making money off of what you're using it for, definitely worth it. Yeah. So moving on from DJI, I didn't think we'd spend that much time talking about <laughs> drones. Um, <laughs> Snapseed 2.0. I was pre- Finally. I was pretty pumped when I saw this. They even like yes. revamped the logo. I think they made the logo nicer, uh, cleaned it up a little bit, got rid of some of the clutter and the junk. It's been, I think, two years since Google has updated Snapseed. You, I think, were originally the one who turned me on to Snapseed, whether or not it was directly mm. through a conversation we had or something I saw you put on Twitter. But it was a couple years ago um, that I got into Snapseed. I actually bought the original Snapseed, and then Google bought Snapseed yep. as a company, <laughs> and Snapseed uh-huh. was offered for free, right? You remember all this? I do remember. Um and I still like even before the the update, I still used it. It did start to feel kind of limited because there's a lot of like presety kind of junk in it. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the retro lux filter. I mean, I used it a lot when I first got it, and then quickly was like, "What the heck am I doing?" Um, so, what do you have? You have you tried Snapsy 2.0? First of all, Howard, 
And if you have, have. give me your thoughts. Yeah, so I've been with Snapseed forever because I loved it on you know, all their apps on the computer and then they came to the phone. And one thing I absolutely loved about Snapseed is that selective adjustment where you can yeah. just kind of put a point in an area, enlarge it, and then create adjustments like brightness and contrast and, and saturation specifically to those areas. And it's very smart because if you're tapping like on a blue sky and you increase that selection, it notices that you, well, you want to adjust the blue sky so it's going to kind of snap or... Uh, mold itself to only the blue sky so it won't really affect mountains or anything it, like that it's sort of like the auto mask in camera raw right where it's right, like auto masking right. to that color yeah right um and of course snapseed 2 2.0 came out and the big thing with snapseed 2.0 is it offers non-destructive editing and if you've watched either of our photoshop or lightroom tutorials you know, we're both huge on non-destructive editing. So now in Snapseed, you can just add a bunch of filters or add a bunch of adjustments and details and things like that. And it's not permanent. So you can always go back and make changes to that. And of course they have a bunch of filters like lens blur and glamor glow. So you don't have to use a lens baby velvet. Right. And, tonal it's, and, contrast. and unlike lens baby, it's a non-destructive glamor. It glow. is. They still have the HDR scape uh, mm -hmm. filter and I've been using it actually in the last few minutes I've been trying it out on a few different photos and it's still terrible <laughs> but whenever you're dealing with H fake HDR on a single image it's always going to be terrible it, quick side note you know why they need to keep HDR scape because if they didn't keep HDR scape what would all the bodybuilders in the gym what effect do they use <laughs> on their photo isn't that like the go-to gym bodybuilder effect like of that of course because it adds structure to your <laughs> right. lack of muscles <laughs> exactly so yeah. So yeah. Overall, I mean, it's it's fantastic. It has brushes and transformations and vignettes. Uh, I mean, there's nothing really dodging bad I can say about it. There's dodging and burning Dod in the brush tool. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, I, I still use uh, Visco Cam for most of my things because it has a ton of really nice presets for all different situations. But if you're looking to actually have a lot of selective, non-destructive adjustments, then Snapseed 2.0 is probably your way to go. Visco to me gets boring. Um, I was on a Visco a kick bit. for a little while. I'll, here's what I don't like about Snapseed 2.0 because it's it honestly is easier to point out the things I don't like than the things that I do like because I like virtually everything. Like you said, a bunch of the filters and junk. I mean you can throw that away but I understand for general consumers you want to have all your filters, right? I mean that makes sense. I wish there was an undo button in the brushing area. Um, mm. If you sort of screw up when you're dodging and burning, you have to like – completely get out of it and get back into it at least as far as i have checked out um uh, i do think there is an erase function um but it would be so much faster and easier if it was just a little arrow you could press to just undo that brush stroke altogether it's how my oh, totally. it's how my workflow works in photoshop you know just a quick commander control z boom undo you know i messed that up yeah and a lot of uh, a lot of mobile applications now are using gestures like a two-finger swipe to the left or something undo so so adding something like that would make a lot of sense and probably be very easy for Google to add. Right. So I don't like not seeing that. And I also wish that in the tune image, they would add a tint slider. I want the ability to, to work with the greens and magentas. It has the temperature slider, which is your blues and oranges. That's great. Give me the tint slider too. This app would be, I'm telling you, I would be like raving, drooling, blithering at the mouth about this app if they had a tint slider added to it. Um, you know, it's weird that you bring that up because I think we were talking about it last week or the week before. It seems a lot of mobile photo editing applications just don't have tint. I think Instagram finally added uh, color adjustments right. where you can control Visco the has shadows it. and highlights. Visco is one of the only apps right. I know of that has it. 
Yep. And some, many of them don't for some reason. I can't imagine it would be a difficult adjustment to add. It's probably just as easy to add as all the other adjustments. I don't know why they don't. Yeah. So, but yeah, so check it out. Snapseed. It's just Snapseed. It's not Snapseed 2.0, but we're just referring to it as Snapseed no. 2.0. Um, but it is, uh, it's a great update. I mean, the UI yep. has been overhauled. Like you said, you've got non-destructive editing. You can go back in. I... When you save a photo to your camera roll, even after you save it to your camera roll, you can still open it back up in Snapseed and access edits that you made. I, I did an edit on a photo a couple days ago or I guess right when it first came out, whenever that was, yesterday or the day before. And then this morning, I opened that photo back up and it still had all of my adjustments. Like I loaded it off of my camera roll. It wasn't just saved in Snapseed. Loaded off my camera roll. And the adjustments were saved there. I could go in, open an adjustment up, retweak it. I could get rid of it altogether, uh, add a new one, whatever I wanted to do. Um, so really an amazing, amazing upgrade. In my mind, Google hit a total home run. It would be an absolute grand slam if there was a tint slider. I'm, ta <laughs> I'm talking an absolute hit the ball to the parking lot, longest home run you've ever seen. Um, they really did a great job on it. And you're working on a review for Snapseed, aren't you? Yes, I, will. I should. By the end of today, I'm hoping to actually have it ready uh, to go up. Yeah, I'm going to do a short review video of it as well as a review article and sort of a tutorial of sorts just to kind of get some info out there about it. And where can people find this once it's finished? Tutvid.com slash something slash Snapseed review, how to edit photos in Snapseed. Follow me on Twitter at Tutvid, <laughs> and I'll tweet out the link for it. Um, or go to Tutvid.com, and you, you should see the article on the homepage when it shows up. There you go. And I'm also wondering if Google or Snapseed is going to update their desktop application because I absolutely loved, and they also had plugins for Photoshop and Lightroom that you can just access all those selective adjustments and things like that directly within those other applications. And mm -hmm. I loved, um, I don't remember, was it called? No, it wasn't called Snapseed. It was called something else. Yeah, I can't um, remember. I absolutely loved those plugins. I, I, I mean, they're, they're still accessible and usable, but I hope there's an update at some point. Yeah. So how, why don't you take the last story? You know a bunch of people at lynda.com or have worked with people from lynda.com before, right, Howard? I do, yeah. I've been using lynda.com forever. Uh, I started using it, oh gosh, years ago. I don't know when that is. And I have a ton of friends over there who are instructors, Justin Seeley, Jan Kabili, Deke McClellan. Uh, oh, gosh, there's probably Brown. even more. Doesn't, doesn't Russell Brown do stuff for them or see Justin Adobe? Yeah, all the Adobe people do a bunch of courses over there. They have a ton of courses um, from learning Photoshop to Lightroom to Microsoft Excel to pretty much any any kind of application you want to on learn. Writing code on the web, CSS, HTML, JavaScript. They've got, what is it, like 38,000 different titles or something? Is that something ridiculous? Something like it's that. Like it's, a, it's insane. It's a ridiculous number of... Yeah. So the big news this week is they were purchased by LinkedIn for $1.5 billion, which includes a bunch of cash payouts and a bunch of stocks. We're not going to get too deep into detail about this stuff. But it's really interesting that they teamed up with LinkedIn. Like originally you would think a company like Adobe who already mm -hmm. provides training and makes a lot of these applications would buy a company like Linda. But it's really, I never even thought of it until someone mentioned it, that LinkedIn is all about fueling your career and finding you uh, p potentially new careers or new jobs. And then you have Linda, which kind of does the same thing, but teaching you how to get to the next place in your career. So it never occurred to me that these two companies would make so much sense together, but I guess it, it probably does. And I, I really hope it, it pays off. And the nice thing about this acquisition, 
from what it seems like, it's basically, you know, LinkedIn sees the potential in Linda. They're throwing a bunch of money at them and they're basically telling them, keep doing what you're doing and we'll make it even better. Yeah, I'm super excited. I I really hope LinkedIn doesn't kind of foul it up. Um, But I saw the video, I think there's a video in the LinkedIn press release or something. Maybe it was somewhere else that I saw it. Um, but they're talking about the acquisition and how LinkedIn wants to create this global job graph where basically they get as many people as they can who are employed or have a skill set onto LinkedIn with profiles saying, here's what I'm good at, here's what I'm not good at. They want to link that with every major industry in the world. So all those companies can say, here are, here are the people we need. These are the skill sets we need from people. Um, and then also link that into the universities as well. And you could almost count Linda as a massive online technical university. University, which LinkedIn uh-huh. is going and buying now. They want to link up with all these universities. So the universities can say both, here are the the here are the skill sets we can train you in, which isn't that kind of weird how college is turning into not a place to go to get educated, but rather a place to go to get trained how to get a job or trained for a <laughs> job, right? I mean, I've been yeah. saying this for years and finally now it looks like it's actually being acknowledged. Um but so the colleges will say, hey, here are the skill sets we can help you foster and develop. And also it looks like the colleges will then say, here are the students that we've put out into the job force, LinkedIn, hire them from us. So I mean, that turns into all kinds of things for – I mean just imagine someday a college might have to pay LinkedIn to get preferential treatment so their students will get hired more easily for jobs through LinkedIn than Joe Schmo's college down the block. You know what I mean? University of Indiana, you know, might have more preferential treatment than, you know, Stony Brook or something, you know, or Harvard University might have preferential treatment to, you know, UCLA or whatever. So really interesting what LinkedIn's doing. For a long time, they've just kind of felt like a big albatross on the web. You know, you sort of put your LinkedIn profile together because you had to, Um but it really looks like they're doing some interesting, interesting things. Um, and I mean, the fact that they have, you know, $1.5 billion to throw around to acquire lynda.com uh, certainly is impressive enough. So there's got to be some crazy vision for the future. And this global job graph, job market, whatever you want to call it, um, totally digitized. Um, looks really, really interesting. And it's fascinating to say the least. Definitely something to keep our eyes on. Oh, totally. And I think, like you said, there there are huge visions for the future. And we've both spoken about the state of education, I think, in our last, not our last episode, but our last podcast, The Howard and Nathaniel Show. And we basically ripped on education, saying it doesn't really teach you the skills you need to get jobs. And I think both Linda and LinkedIn realize this, and they're going to do something. I mean, they'll probably build on Linda, but I think they're going to build on LinkedIn and kind of intertwine that with Linda somehow. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, and just one parting note on it. Just uh, huge congratulations for the people at Linda, the instructors mm-hmm. that I've interacted with over the years, the people you've interacted with. Like, I'm genuinely happy for them. At LinkedIn, make, yep. they're, they're making it sound like they're going to try to retain at least most of the staff. Um, yep. And it seems like, I mean, Justin, I you know, I'm friends with him on Facebook, um, and he seems super excited about it. So just to see people like that, really, really happy um, for people like that, who it, this should be something hopefully really, really good for their career careers and uh i mean how cool would it be to be part of a team in a, in a company that gets acquired by a massive internet company for 1.5 
billion dollars. <laughs> to know that you're yeah. a part of that is insanely cool. Um, so it just really is. Genuine, I mean, I work for, for them. the company I work for, Full Screen. We got acquired last year. It hasn't been a year yet. Um, I can't say the exact amount, but it was several hundred million dollars, I think. Um, and it's partially owned by AT&T. And that was, it was, it was really cool thinking that I was one of the people that helped, even though I was one of like 200 people, but I was still one of the people that helped make this happen and help, are going to help build up this company into the vision that we envision it as. It is really cool. So, you know, big props to everyone at Linda, everyone at LinkedIn, and I, I can't wait to see what happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. So on that happy note, let's uh, jump into questions. And we got some some minutes here for questions before we got to shut it down. About 20 minutes. So we'll quickly go through these. All right. Um, We've got six six pretty good questions to knock out Mm -hmm. here at the top. So let's let's knock these things out. Why don't you take the first? This is a question to you, right? All right. So the first one is from Sasan, maybe? Sorry if I mispronounced your name. When do you think the Apple Watch will become mainstream? Will it ever become mainstream? Every product Apple has announced, it has kind of anxious reception, but almost everything Apple releases excels. Uh, that's an interesting question. When do I think Apple, the Apple Watch will become mainstream? Well, I mean, judging by how quickly they sold out and how quickly the shipping times have been pushed back just in like five minutes last night, or I guess this morning, I think we're going to see several million of them being pre-ordered this weekend. And I think we're going to see a lot of people wearing them. I don't think the Apple Watch necessarily will become mainstream. I think it's more of a broader picture. When will smartwatches become mainstream? And I think the Apple Watch is going to help that. Because right now, the industry was in a very strange place. Mm -hmm. For example, Android Wear. I could not wear an Android Wear device because it doesn't sync with my iPhone yet actually we heard a few weeks ago and and again this week that google is very close to getting android wear compatible with the iphone which makes me very excited because they have some amazing watches that are available Mm -hmm. but they just don't sync with my iphone so i think now that the apple watch is out now that we're seeing a bunch of decent android wear devices by the end of the year i guarantee you a very large portion of the tech community will be wearing some sort of smartwatch. now In terms of when you say the anxious reception and everything Apple releases excels, yeah, Apple has this weird cult following surrounding surrounding it. Like someone like me who stayed up last night till one in the morning pre-ordering an Apple Watch and I have zero idea why. And honestly, I don't need an Apple Watch. There is this weird culture around Apple. but I definitely wouldn't say that everything Apple releases excels because from the reviews that I'm reading and from my personal thoughts on the Apple Watch, I don't think it's going to be a revolutionary product. It's going to help build revolutionary products in the future. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the Apple Watch is going to be something that will change people's lives until the second or third revision. So. Not everything Apple releases is amazing, but there's definitely that weird culture around it that makes it seem that way. So a little while before it becomes truly mainstream. It'll probably be a hit in the tech community, like you said. They'll probably sell a few million over the weekend, whatever. Um, but, I mean, see, I think Apple Apple has sort of won the 25 to 55 market, mm-hmm. um, whereas Android, you know, sort of a lot of the techie, um, I still think Android is 
much more closed off toward the younger tech community. Um, and, and especially with something like the, the smartwatch field, arena, whatever you want to call it, industry, you really need that compatibility because the things that smartwatches are going to allow you to do, they're only going to be effective when it works everywhere. Otherwise, it's a useless lump of metal you have on your wrist. Right, I mean, for the for the great mind blowing stuff, you know, rather than just being an extension of your phone onto your wrist, you know, you're really gonna need it to be compatible everywhere you go. I mean, we've talked about Apple Pay a number of times, and still it's not catching on because you need to know that every time you pull your phone out, it's going to work when you go to pay it, just like you would with cash or a credit card. Um, so until there's that, even with the smartwatch, I don't see it becoming a mainstream thing. Like you said, I think the technology in it, and I have no idea where it's going to go, but I think the technology in it, it has potential to be mainstream in some way by like the second or third generation, which could be as soon as, you know, a year and a half to maybe three years. I mean, how quickly have we caught up with 4K? Do you know what I mean? That's been, uh, you know, that's been out and gaining prominence for about probably three years now. So on to the next question. Shay from Facebook says, I do a lot of work in Photoshop. I'm very comfortable creating mocks or mockups for websites, but getting that work in a Dreamweaver is where I have problems. What's the most efficient way to get your PSD work into Dreamweaver so that uh, everything is functional? Um, I, I left a comment on Facebook about this, but the, the short answer, uh, and it's much easier said than done, is to get really good at HTML and CSS. Uh, and, and then add on to that something like jQuery, some sort of JavaScript library. jQuery is sort of the most mainstream one right now. So get good at that stuff um, and then use your Photoshop mock-up as a reference and only use graphics where you absolutely have to use graphics to keep the website lightweight and scalable and responsive, um, things like that. Um, and to quickly add to that, f since Photoshop CC came out, they have a copy CSS feature. So mm -hmm. if you're designing a shape in Photoshop and you add a stroke and an outline, or I guess that's the same thing. If you had a stroke and a drop shadow and maybe an inner glow, you can actually right click on the layer in your layers panel and choose copy CSS. And it's actually going to copy all the, you know, they're going to, convert that into CSS, you can paste that right into Dreamweaver and you get the exact shape, which right. is kind of cool. And, and there is an entire export this layout with CSS feature now instead of just all the mm, HTML markup, right. which was always a mess. Now, I still have not even done it. I haven't tried. I should probably do a tutorial on it just to see mm -hmm. if it's even a mess or if it's feasible. Um, in the past, it's been a nightmare. So I... I still would say learn how to write the code. Um, it's difficult, yes, at first, but it's so worth it when you actually do it. Um, and that this will actually sort of segue into our next question, but I'll, I'll let you handle the next question. But there is uh, Adobe Edge Reflow CC, which is like a whole web layout. It's actually a number of programs, isn't it? Like Muse is in there. It isn't is, it yeah. considered like a plethora of little applications that comes with Creative mm -hmm. Cloud? Um, and you can create responsive layouts. Again, I've never used it, but it does look pretty amazing from the demos. Now, everything looks amazing in demo form. You'll have to, you know, get the application, test it out, and see how it goes. But I know it's supposed to cut its teeth being a great web layout piece of software um, and all of that. So yeah, Edge Reflow CC I would check out. Yeah, for sure. And the next question is what programs slash apps outside of, of, of Adobe CC do you find best to supplement your workflow? Uh, honestly, for me, I don't really use very many other applications. Obviously, I use ScreenFlow for my 
to record my tutorials. Um, on my iPad, I, do, I mean, I use a few photo editing apps like Visco and Snapseed, uh, but very rarely do I use anything outside of the Adobe Creative Cloud suite. Mm -hmm. uh, do you use anything? Yeah, I mean, I use extra? I use a couple web apps, um, and also more like like I use. There's a great Adobe Air app called Focus Booster, which is a great little like timer to keep yourself working in these short cycles. It's amazing. It's lightweight. It just sits there and it works. I love that. Obviously, I use Chrome, which is technically a program. Um, and uh, I, I use a web apps like Google Calendar. There, Google has a bunch of webmaster right. apps that are great. Um, there's an app called Coda, which is a great coding, a code editor, which is really great. And also uh, another coding app that I actually like a little bit more. It's a little bit lighter even called Brackets, uh, which Brackets is free. Coda, I think, is like 69 bucks, if I recall correctly. Uh, both those are great. Um, and those are definitely programs uh, that I use outside of Adobe CC. As far as apps on my phone, I have all the standard stuff. I don't do anything special. Instagram, Snapseed, Snapchat, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all that junk. Um, I don't really have anything crazy. There's, I know there's a frozen game that my niece likes to play, uh, but that doesn't really <laughs> contribute to my workflow. In fact, when she, sure about that? When, when she comes over and plays it, it usually breaks my workflow. So I can't say that that contributes to my workflow. Awesome. And the final question, actually, we're going to... We have three more questions, but we're going to skip well, the last two for next week. Cause we'll probably pass the last one on to next week. Okay. Yeah, we'll, okay. Do, we'll do two more. I have a doctor's appointment in like 40 minutes, and it's half an hour away. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it quick. What is, the, what is the toughest tool or effect you've ever taught yourself, and how long did it take to get the hang of? Ooh, toughest tool. Uh, That's a good well, question. Recently, yeah, recently I would say I've been dabbling a lot in After Effects now that I'm doing green screen work uh, for my intros and outros. That was very difficult to get a hang of. Using key light within After Effects with the spill suppression and all that stuff, very difficult to get your hang, uh, your my head around, especially when you're dealing with not perfect lighting and you have a green screen in the background that's wrinkly and everything like that. That's difficult, but in terms of Photoshop, Oh boy, I've been using Photoshop for like 13, 14 years. So I've kind of grown with a lot of these tools, but mm -hmm. I would say the pen tool is probably, even though right now I use it very well, that's probably the tool that had, uh, excuse the pun, um, a hard learning curve. Um, <laughs> I would, yeah, I would say the, you know, curve, pen tool. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, I, oh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You had this blank look on your face like, did he seriously just make that joke? Um, yeah, I would say the pen tool was probably the hardest to learn when I was learning it. Mm. Um, and I found a lot of people who send me messages and watch my videos also have a hard time learning. But it's once you do learn it and spend some time, it's a fantastic tool. Yeah, so useful. I think the hardest tool... Um Toughest effect-wise, I mean, there are a lot of difficult effects. I mean, would photorealistic illustration in Illustrator be considered a tough effect? Because the gradient mesh tool is pretty difficult to pick up and learn in Illustrator and to do well. Um, but I would say in Photoshop, probably the toughest tool are the 3D tools. Um, and how long did it take me to get the hang of it? I still don't have the hang of them. I'm still always mm. messing around with them. And though they change. They change much more frequently than I really get in and use them. So it seems like every time I open them up and use them, something's changed. So there's always a process of kind of relearning some stuff. So for me, definitely the 3D tools in Photoshop or the gradient mesh uh, in Illustrator. 
And then the last question of the day, um, and again, I left a little comment on Facebook for this, but how much should I charge for logo creation? Um, it, there's a lot, that's, it's a huge question really. Um, but I'll try to keep it short here. I would basically figure out how long it takes for you to create a, a basic logo with two rounds of revisions. So that's, you create a logo, you send it to the client for review. They send it back to you. You make some changes, send it to them for review. They can send it back for one more round of changes and then boom, final logo done. How many hours does that take you? Figure out what you want to make per hour and then charge that for your logo. See how that goes. I would I would really, really, really advise anybody when it comes to pricing, try to ignore what people around you are paying and charge uh -huh. what you think you're worth. The mark if you're good, if you do good work and you're really concerned about you getting better at what you do, you're gonna be able to charge whatever you want, reasonably speaking. Um so Try to ignore what you think the market is. The market might be much better than you perceive it to be. Um, and charge what you think you can charge. Um, a good starting price that I always throw out for a logo is 300 bucks. You know, mm -hmm. just at like a base level, $300. Start there. You know, and, and if you feel like, whoa, that's way too low, bump it up a bit. See how long it takes you to create a logo. You know, if it takes you six hours and you want to make $50 an hour, that's $300. If it takes you six hours, but you only want to make $10 an hour, that's only $60. So, you know, figure out what you want to make per hour and how many hours it takes you to create like a logo and there's your price. And to quickly add to that, if you are doing a logo design or graphic design as a side job, figure out what you are currently making per hour. Someone like me, I do very rarely the occasional logo or website design or whatever on the side, but when someone does approach me, my rates over the last year or so since I started working for full screen have skyrocketed because I basically have to take into I have to take into account my real quote unquote real job with full screen break that down see what I make per hour based on my salary and then charge a little bit more to my clients because I have to do that stuff on the side. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a good way to think about it. And that's a, a good tip, actually, to give to sort of anchor yourself to something solid. Um, but, yeah, that's what I would do. So, logo creation. And, and actually, side note, the same would go for virtually all graphic design work. Um, it's a matter of figuring out what you charge per hour and the more jobs you do, the more you're going to know, okay, a simple web layout takes me X number of hours to create, a brochure takes X number of hours to create and so on and so forth. So that is it. That was, oh, by the way, that was Eric from Facebook. I don't know if I mentioned that. Oh yeah. And we do have one more question from Nick. I believe that was from Facebook. We're going to save that till next yep. week because we're running out of time. This has been, oh yeah. Um, Let's go for the $25 gift card. Let's go for Sasan maybe because it's kind of related to everything that we're talking about in yeah. the Apple Watch world. Sure. Yeah, we can do that. So Sasan, if you're listening, I hope you're listening. Shoot, I believe that you submitted it to my Facebook. So yeah. so, uh, shoot me an email, not an email, a Facebook message on facebook.com slash iceflowstudios. I'll get you that gift card. Um, and that will do it for episode number nine of the yeah. We Geeks podcast. If you do love our show, head over to patreon.com slash WeGeeks. Again, you can listen to our podcast at WeGeeksPodcast.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, the whole shebang. Subscribe, and, uh, subscribe, we, share it with your friends. Share it with your friends. Yes, that's, definitely do that's that. That's the big important thing. And you can yep. check out the, the follow-up article and all of the stuff that we talked about, tutvid.com slash WeGeeks slash episode 
nine. That's the number nine, by the way. And you can follow Howard on Twitter at Iceflow Studios. You can follow me on Twitter at Tutvid. And that is it for this week. So until awesome. next time. We'll see you guys next week. See ya.